0: Let's go in and see how that's impacted your spending and saving in the last week or the last month. And then let's dissect that. So again, like back to the first phase of fintechs where they were displaying data, it was very helpful because it started to give you clarity on what you were doing, but it wasn't telling you why or how you were to optimize that behavior. Our insight section is really what connects the dots. Behavior change can happen with data, but behavior norms happen with insight. You start to understand the practical implications why you do certain things.
1: You're listening to Art of the App. I'm your host, Michelle Cherian. Each episode, you'll get creative inspiration from mission driven startup founders, investors, and other experts disrupting the status quo. Hear about the thought processes and values that help guide them from early ideas to the standout products and brands that people love. Looking to learn from others creating a massive impact in the world? Welcome to Art of the App. Welcome everyone. In today's episode, I talked to Maya Monell. I spoke with Maya's co-founder Aaron Papworth back in episode 9. We talked about habit formation and financial well-being. So definitely check that one out as well. Maya's the co-founder and CMO of Navit Money app. Navit's the fitness app for your finances, helping you build good habits to live financially well. When she's not pitching, selling, and creating for Navit, Maya's working with her family's two foundations. She's devoted to closing the wealth gaps perpetuated by a system not built for the majority of America, and actively supports initiatives capable of making a global lasting impact. In this episode, Maya and I talk about how she took her expertise in predictive analytics that she was using in the fitness space and applied it to finances, how Navit had started their own community, and the stages it went through, and how they're approaching it from both the top-down and the bottom-up. And then we talk about her family's foundation that her grandmother started during the Depression. This was super inspiring and I think something that you'll really enjoy. If you enjoy the podcast, please scroll up and subscribe. That is the number one way that we can grow and reach more people. All right, let's dive in. Maya, I'm so happy to have you here. I had such a great conversation with your co-founder, Aaron, which for everyone listening, that is episode nine on financial wellness with Navit.
0: Michelle, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join you.
1: So I wanted to start out with what led you to want to start Navit. I know that you have a, a background in growth and we were talking about analytics just before we hopped on here. So I'd love to hear more about your story.
0: I feel like every founder's story is a little wild and different. And mine... I was not in kind of traditional financial services before this. I was not in fintech before this. It was actually in what we call fit tech or fitness technology. So I spent many years growing a uh, Bay Area startup called Bridge Athletic, and they were really pioneering this approach to human performance like AI and ML, which would essentially help Act as the assistant coach. So come in and provide different training protocols to the athlete at the time of training based on predictive indicators like how they slept the night before, how they ate the day before, you know, how hydrated they felt, so on and so forth. So it would help kind of alleviate the burden on the coach who might have been coaching multiple athletes at once to adjust load and say volume variance, try and ensure and mitigate, you know, risk to the athlete by kind of automatically calibrating the workload for that day based on how the athlete was indicating they felt. Nobody was really doing that at the time. The future app was not out there for consumers. And we were really focused on kind of more of the elite sports space. We were working with brands like the Rangers here in Brooklyn, right? We were working with professional sports leagues. I think we had actually brands in every league by the time I left. And we were also working with big fitness groups and, and enterprise accounts. And, you know, we had actually really cut our teeth in uh, higher ed too. So the kind of foundation of the platform was really to support coaches with a high volume of athletes. And that often sent the coach in a college
1: or kind of some college setting. And was it always one-to-one? Because it's like these coaches are coaching people individually, but then they're, they're part of like a team.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people think like you think about the starting team of a basketball team, like it's not that many athletes, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of these coaches were looking for ways to not just support their athletes like in that moment, right? But they were also looking to do things like gain insight from how that workload variability impacted their overall success, both on the field or on the court and off the field or court. So we were doing a lot of kind of heavy insights, delivery and like analysis for coaches too, which really took them out of say like the traditional mundane Excel spreadsheet and into like, the technological evolution of the 21st century, which a lot of these coaches were reticent towards. I think that that was also really empowering to see how athletes started to really evolve their own mindset. This was when we were starting to then realize the holistic approach to an athlete, like holistic health as a huge determinant to their performance on the field for 60 minutes. How they spent their time outside of training, right? How mentally resilient they were. Not to timestamp this episode, but we're watching that play out in the Olympics right now, right? With Simone Biles, like how mental health, financial health, and all these other health implications, emotional health, really played into the performance outcomes of the most notable athletes in the game. And so that really is what led me into joining Aaron and starting Navit was because I kind of started to see how technology was helping to prescribe better outcomes to the end consumer. And when I met Aaron, who came to me with this idea of creating, you know, behavior change and daily habits to improve financial outcomes, I said, well, I think I know how to do that. And they're doing it really effectively in the fitness, nutritional, and even mental health space. I think we could easily apply it to financial health too.
1: As these people are like up-leveling themselves in this very holistic way, they're also up-leveling their group, their team around them, and it helps the coach understand like, the dynamics within the team and maybe who to start in the app. It's also like while well, you're up leveling your community, your immediate peer group, but then also the people that you come in contact with just in a less intimate way. Hugely so.
0: And I think one of the cool things that we started to see at Bridge was how athletes were taking you know because it was an app right of the whole one of the key value adds and the most obvious were that coaches could deliver training protocols to athletes all over the world they didn't have to be in the gym with them at that moment in time but that also meant that then athletes were bringing of course their phones back into their home environment and bringing that same training to their partners and they weren't just saying like okay can i give my significant other the like 300 pound bench press that i'm gonna do tomorrow that's not necessarily it, but. I think they were starting to like understand the context to how you live your life and how that translates into your everyday performance. And they were starting to like give that methodology back to the people around them, which I think really was helped, frankly, spurred on the health movements that we're now seeing today, both at work and, you know, in our own home lives of like this practical approach to preventative medicine and preventative care and holistic care is like really, I think, driven from how athletes, you know, took it upon themselves to really consider all of the different variables to their performance and how that's now, I mean, they have huge platforms, how that's now just translated and trickled down the, the funnel to the direct consumer.
1: Even we think about like high performance coaches and yeah, it started with athletes, but now it's even in coaching, just think about how we reach our potential.
0: Completely. I mean, you know, personal training's become a huge evolution even in the last decade, right? Where like people that can afford to do so are seeking them out far more than they ever would before because they know that this is a measure of preventative care. Like, you know, the apple a day, it's like the trainer a month <laughs> keeps
1: the doctor away.
0: Really trying to improve your your holistic habits, I think are, are really impactful to your overall health over time.
1: So one of the other things that I know that Navit does really well is you have like a a very strong community as part of the app. What I've seen and just kind of looking at community and, and it's just become such a thing that a lot of people want right now within their brands. And for good reason, right? Because it helps propel the brand in a lot of ways. I see a lot of people want to start this up and then they want to have it like right away. The community should like, kick off and be running running <laughs> it takes time to seed that to nurture it i was wondering like how you thought about it in the beginning and how you went about creating that and for other people listening out there that are thinking about starting a community like you know what were the maybe milestones along the way patience
0: is a virtue that i do not have but patience is the virtue you need when trying to build a community You'll never really move the needle on community development if you don't start with the most authentic voice to the the most relatable group. Erin and I first founded Navit as a fintech for women, like by and large, you know, women plus and women and allies, but we were really focused on serving Tools to an underserved, like frankly forgotten population—that's half of the market for financial services—and I think we were able to do that. Obviously, we were women, but it's because we also felt that level of being of exclusion. I went to business school, but neither of us—you know—studied finance undergrad. Like neither of us worked at JP Morgan Chase. <laughs> like, we never came from the investment background or you know traditional financial services either. Still managed to figure it out and create pretty compelling lives for ourselves and also, you know, have always helped our friends and allies like around us also navigate their own financial choices. It felt most obvious to us to at least build a community on the foundation of the people that needed it most and who were frankly, like probably most likely to want to foster a community as well. Women are the gatherers for a reason. Like that's not a negative stereotype. That's I think a really empowering stereotype. And so that was really helpful out of the gate. And then I think it just really spun out from there. I mean, we're still, of course, in growth stage. Like We're still trying to tap into other markets and other opportunities and build other types of communities. But our community was really centered around a need for destigmatizing money conversations and asking really uncomfortable questions to a community of peers that weren't going to judge you. That frankly starts at the founder level. Like I don't think it frankly would have worked if Aaron and I were two white men from you know, Wall Street. Like, even if we had the best intentions, I don't feel that comfortable talking to those guys out of the gate about you know the most intimate parts of my money. Like, why would anybody else? I think that level of authenticity really helped us expand and grow. And then it also really helped us. You know, that started with, of course, then like millennial female early working into their like more established working years, and then that started to trickle down into the Z's, into those soon to graduate, and how we can kind of create community. In community-centric locations. So just like we did with women in early days who we knew were gatherers and would really help foster this narrative and like keep the conversation going and growing. What are now other demographics or other physical environments where populations are looking for community-led engagement? One of the obvious is in higher ed. So really just like we did a bridge where we started to talk to athletes and teams and like understand kind of team culture and how to penetrate that culture and provide them an authentic service that was really going to help them. We're doing kind of the same thing with student groups on campus. We have an ambassador program called Money Mates. That's been really fun to activate. And now students, the gig economy was not really a thing, right? Like you, you couldn't just go online and start like writing a blog post for somebody and, and, and make money from it. But now students can. I mean, students are very much a big part of the workforce now. And I think that they're also often forgotten, in that capacity, and therefore, like they don't know what tax implications they are staring down when they make significant, you know, variable income while still a school, and also what those implications might be for their family as well. So there's a lot of opportunity there, and that's what we're really focused on right now.
1: Yeah, it's very disheartening to know how we hardly get a financial education until we're adults and faced with, oh my gosh, I have to I have to do my taxes, and then everyone like goes out and gets a credit card, eventually gets into debt your first time. And then you're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) I need to figure this out. This affects my FICO
0: score. What's the FICO score again? (laughs) (laughs) And why does my purchasing power impact it? Yeah, no, totally. Because there's been such a lack of education in, or lack of financial literacy and education in higher ed, the ownership now to and the onus is really on the employer to pick up the pieces of both their early entrance population like you know their first out of school as well as their established population is to say like well if you're going to gear up to retire this is how you're going to have to roll over your 401k or like make sure you're optimizing your 401k and you know maxing it out like there's becomes such a burden on the employer i don't think it used to exist because we actually you know For better or worse, we used to have HOMAC. We used to have these kinds of pre-established personal financial management courses in school, or at least teachings embedded in the curriculum. We no longer have that. So now I think the burden's grown. And so we're also trying to create communities through our Navidate Work Partnership. So we actually partner with employers to basically come in and be their financial well-being provider distributing the app, but also, you know, leveraging our kind of in-app communications to tailor to that specific workforce and kind of understand, like, what is the pain point across a population of 10,000 lives? And how can we address them in a very authentic way? You know, and how, how can we be helpful to all of these different types of demographics?
1: Yeah. And so when you have these ambassador programs, whether it's at school or work, how does that actually work? Do you have someone from your team kind of working with continuing ed or
0: Yeah, it totally depends. There is definitely like a top down and a bottom up strategy, especially in higher ed. The higher ed, we could be connected to and working closely with, say, the top folks of student life, financial aid, even HR. So as we even service higher ed populations that are actually faculty and staff on campus. So kind of like the traditional, you know, front office folks that you would really find in any organization, maybe the financial aid being a little bit different than that, but certainly there's a need for it. And then on the employer side, it's kind of mixed. We're really targeting enterprise. So at an enterprise level, more and more employers are building out what they call wellness teams. So they can be volunteered folks from across different departments, or they can actually be like full-time wellness talent people Those are typically our first stakeholders. And those are the folks that we work with most closely to identify the need of the population, understand the pain points, figure out what our custom communication can be towards them. Because, you know, not every population is going to be super interested in high interest credit card and debt consolidation. They might be more interested in, say, investment, one-on-ones to investments. The population varies. So how can we meet those people where they are? And also provide the third party for the employer to say, you know, we can help you communicate the value of your benefits at large without it sounding like pushy or salesy from your team. We are here to service the end user. And if we think that your benefits are actually going to help save the money and actually make the money in the long run, then of course, we'll try and champion what you've set up already through the good in-app native environment. And then the bottom-up approach is really through that ambassador approach, where we find people that have come to us saying, hey, like, is there a discount to your subscription? And I'll say, absolutely. Did you know your employer would pay for this for you to use for free? Or if you want to be an ambassador on campus, yes, here's the free app. And also it comes along with like your own coaching sessions. You want to speak to one of our accredited coaches, I think that there's a lot of ways to build community around like singular evangelists that really feel compelled by your message. The one thing that we're doing on campuses right now is to identify different student athletes, actually. because Student athletes are now being able to be paid by brands to essentially be their brand ambassadors and champion and sponsor the brand. And with that, of course, like I talked about, the gig economy comes with a whole host of new kind of income barriers and things to overcome, challenges to overcome. And you know we're trying to help meet those athletes with the most need where they are and to say like, hey, well, yeah, take the sponsorship if you're jazzed about it. Let us help you figure out the tax implications to it. Hunt us over to their coach and then we start working with their whole team and then that overflows into other campus life initiatives.
1: I'm thinking about the app itself. Is it still the same experience or do they have A closed, like, okay, this is my team, my community. And same with the companies. Do they have a company page or something like that?
0: Company stakeholders will actually be able to log into their own uh, web based portals so they can track and aggregate, de identified, like the health and engagement of their population. Are they using Navit? Is Navit improving their financial fitness? Is this a worthy benefit for our folks to keep using? We feel like we have to provide them that. That's only fair. To prove our value and frankly it's going to be helpful to us <laughs> as we continue to grow across the population but there's also a component of service to the employer that we do offer because we have always built for the end consumer we have ways to position certain types of content to people that are most interested in that type of content so for instance if you download the app today as a regular user and you say you want to build up an emergency fund we're going to position a savings articles and tips and quizzes to you first. So you know that Navit's actually here to help you not just serve you up a bunch of templatized content that may or may not be relevant. And so we can do the exact same thing on the employer level. Like the employer can say, yeah, let my people like run their own show and and act like a direct consumer, essentially we'll pay for it. Or let's work together to identify what different types of content our population wants at large and how we can better communicate that. So we'll do that through in-app webinars, certain on-site activation stuff. We'll work with the employers however they want to, however deep they want to go. And then same for the students and on-campus population really do mimic uh, the direct-to-consumer distribution channel where it's like they really want their own path and it's less community-oriented. But at the same time, we've actually partnered with a couple of different financial coaches and advisory firms who can actually help us bring, say, recorded or even at certain times live course sessions to, say, the team, So, say the the football team of Wake Forest. We can go in and provide them with a six-week course for their team that's hyper-specific to them where they can ask coaching questions, they can join in for virtual office hours, It can be a much more educational approach, which really services that environment well. It's a little bit less of an appeal to like the workforce because they're no longer in that educational segment. They really want actionable tools where the student pop is still very much in like learning mode where they just they're trying to sponge up as much as they can all at once. There's so much to uncover on the community side for direct-to-consumers, too. Like, it's really exciting a community fostering approach of fostering financial well-being is really compelling and how we can help each other wealth generating outcomes by pooling money together, for example, is, is something that we're really focused on right now.
1: Yeah. And I know it's so much about mindset too, which is a huge part of wealth generation in general. You can tell them maybe about how you do money mindset and the predictiveness around that. And then I'd love to hear how, you know, using analytics, how that has helped, you know, the business grow.
0: So we have this money mindset feature, which is one of the key, I think, differentiators for NABIT. We're trying to create a way for users to want to and enjoy doing daily engagement around their money. I don't know, maybe you do, but I don't know anybody that really enjoys just looking at their balance statement every single day. Having other than buyer's remorse, no positive or actionable emotion around doing so. So by and large, what FinTech's done in the past is they've done that and they've done a great job. And there is a level, like, especially in the first phase, we kind of say we're the second phase of FinTech, but the first phase of FinTech and open banking, which allowed you to connect all of your accounts together and see where your money was going and see where you were saving it and how you could optimize it. Just like that visual display of data was incredibly helpful to the first generation of fintech consumers who had never had that experience before, right? Like that did improve.
1: Yeah. Like I remember when Mint came out in 2008, 2007, it's like,
0: we were like, what?
1: St. Andrews did like an awesome study on this.
0: It significantly impacted both financial literacy and maybe more impactfully financial confidence because you understood at a more holistic level what was happening with your money, like how you're operationalizing it which was super cool and critical. However, the downside to that was it showed you, but it didn't encourage you to improve. Like It didn't tell you or coach you how to get better around certain aspects or what you might be losing out on. So the next phase of fintech was really around honing in on one user pain point and doing it really well. So for instance, if you didn't needed to consolidate debt, there are, I mean, you can type it in right now, right? Like neo banks that consolidate debt a plethora of them in the marketplace that were finding their own little niches. But what we found wasn't really happening was behavior improvements. There was certainly behavior change because that's where the reward system comes in, right? It's like, you know, top up, save a little bit, get rewarded on your credit card, get cash back. Like there were definitely incentives to do an action that benefited the company, but there was never really a tool like we were seeing in physical health and nutritional health and mental health, that was really applying behavior change practices to make a better end user. That's where we were really going with these kind of daily micro habits. Erin's favorite scientist, so she could speak more eloquently to this. But essentially, to change behaviors, you need to implement daily habits that get you towards that bigger goal. Part of daily habits is paying attention, the open banking thing, the mint thing, right? You started to pay attention to your money. But without the two other elements that we identify as discussion and practice, you don't do a whole lot with that attention. And so the money mindset feature is a really good, I think, example of how we tie in all three. We know that you need, when you pay attention to your money, you're 10 times more likely to save. So the money mindset quiz first asks you, how are you feeling? How stressed are you today? And then why are you feeling that way? Is it work? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it income? Is it utilities? You can create a custom. I have a dog. I always put the dog in there, (laughs) always stressing me out, X, Y, Z. And then we'll say, okay, that's how you're feeling. Why don't you go see how you're feeling against your last 24 hours of transactions? So once you fill in that form, you're starting to take action. Certainly you submitted the daily form. So that's a small level of habit, But what I think is most compelling and ties the practice and attention together is our transaction swipe feature, which is asking you to essentially swipe left or right, kind of like a Bumble or Tinder swipe on how you feel negative, positive, or neutral about each transaction. And that might seem mundane. It might be like, oh my God, you're making me go through like line by line, but we really don't have that many transactions in our day-to-day life, but it does bring awareness to how you're spending and saving and growing your wealth. And then the last component of that is really two prong. It's insights, so it's to say, okay, now that you've submitted the last 24 hours, you've told us how you're feeling right now, let's go in and see how that's impacted your spending and saving in the last week or the last month. And then let's dissect that. So again, like back to the first phase of FinTechs where they were displaying data, it was very helpful because it started to give you clarity on what you were doing, but it wasn't telling you why or how you were to optimize that behavior. Our insight section is really what connects the dots. Behavior change can happen with data, but behavior norms happen with insight. You start to understand the practical implications, why you do certain things. Just like an athlete, right? Like if I see that I'm dehydrated for seven days straight and I miss a PR on my next deadlift, I'm going to go back and be like, oh, well it's because I didn't treat my body correctly. Of course, I didn't hit my goal. You can do the exact same thing with your money. When you discuss money with others, you're 20 times more likely to save in a given month. And so the last component of this is to go in and share how you're feeling, like what that report card basically is with others and learn how other people are improving their stress incrementally, or navigating a specific obstacle that you might have to or creating a savings goal for your kid's summer camp, or you know, doing all these things that can elicit better behavior just by providing kind of a connection to other people that are also doing it too.
1: That is huge. Like seeing is believing. So that's how you're really using these like prescriptive analytics to kind of help the navigators as you call them, right? Or how do you tend to like think about this for Navit's growth?
0: I think that there are huge implications in a lot of different areas. So we definitely use both prescriptive and predictive analytics. So the idea of predictive analytics is to say, tell us this information, and then we will predict the outcome based on the criteria you mentioned or based on the inputs that you've put in. So we're doing that with insights. We're saying, you know, you're more likely to be financially stressed when you spend at McDonald's three days a week. You can start to see where I'm going with this. But the broader business implications to that criteria is to say we can start to predict health outcomes and hopefully prescribe better solutions before they become chronic illness indicators. This is where healthcare is actually a really compelling component to actually what we're building as a fintech because we can start to say, Maya, is everything okay? You've been spending A lot of money at places that you know don't bring you joy in the last four months. Can we connect you to a resource of ours, like a mental health app that might be able to offer you some additional coaching? Or we saw that you also lost some significant income. How can we help connect you to a career coach or help you find, you know, next job? Essentially, how can we use maybe the most powerful data a user holds, which is their financial data and put it to work to improve their health outcomes over time? And that's where the prescriptive approach comes in, right? It's to say, okay, now that we can predict where you're going, positive or negative, how can we prescribe the best opportunities or the best roadmap for you to ensure that you get to a happy place? So you ensure that you get to the place that you want to go to to reach your goal. We love the whole like journey thing. And that's really where I think the learnings from digital health at large have really been critical to our business. And it really is what's setting us apart from other fintechs, both because we see ourselves more of a health tool than we do a fintech tool, but also because, because we do so, we're able to engage a user in a much more compelling way to retain them and you know, really create a, a much more loyal user than other fintechs have historically done in the past. And that then really leads into the business case, right? It's like, if we can retain a paying user for longer, of course, that speaks highly to our product. But it also has tremendous implications on what we're doing with the data. We're evaluating behavior. We're showing you like your step goal on your Fitbit. If we're showing you how your improvement to financial literacy or improvement to financial fitness metrics are all improving incrementally and we're quantifying it into one score, a financial well-being score, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to leverage that score as an additional means for underwriting to you know, the next lender you go to that's our overall goal is to say, how can our financial well-being and more importantly, behavior-based underwriting be a effective way to de-risk a candidate and make them a healthier, frankly, more capable, more wealthy, really financial consumer.
1: I love that because it ties into so much more than what they're doing with the app and much more to these ripple effect and the ramifications that they see in the rest of their life. And I don't think a lot of people like necessarily think about that whenever they're creating.:
0: I think for at least a tech founder, it's always really, I think especially now important to think about how the data that you're asking for your user can be served back to them
1: in a way that makes them a better human being. Awesome. So I wanted to switch tracks and go, to talk about your podcast. I know you and Aaron have a podcast. I see a lot of startups starting founder-led podcasts and I think it's a really interesting way to like grow the community but also you know just spread your message and really talk about the different aspects of what the company does whatever that company is what they believe in the different ways that like the thing that they're doing plays out in the world and people and so I was wondering like for you know any startups out there that are thinking about this do you have advice like what were you thinking about and goals that when you started it what have you found out along the way
0: don't underestimate the time it takes you to create a podcast michelle will tell you this more than most and so therefore i would say like make sure that your desire to host one is intentional and really well thought out because there's there are fintech app or fintechs in the world there are a lot of podcasts too so It can be very helpful for founders who have, I think every founder has something to say, but I mean, who have a compelling voice and feel confident in like kind of sharing a little bit more about both their personal background, their professional background, are really confident with having guests on, you know, can ask the hard and thoughtful questions. Like it's not something to just like add to the navigation bar of your website, you should really take it seriously, just as you would take seriously quality written content on a blog. I think the podcast is one of the most compelling platforms to share your brand and your narrative and like who you are and create that level of authenticity that can really create community. But it's also highest in the funnel, you have the most to lose almost with any audience like in any listener. So you have to make it compelling. I think you know, Aaron and I are lucky in that we could probably talk for hours to ourselves, let alone with each other and a guest <laughs> and talk about like anything in life. We have a pretty natural platform for it and we do use it for top of funnel co- conversion. I mean, it's not necessarily our biggest conversion platform for a paying subscriber, but it's certainly great for awareness building. You know, we often see that if folks that come in and listen to a couple of our episodes are those that are most likely to convert in the app store later on. And that's worth it to us. They're super cost effective. It's way easier to do than actually write a blog, especially if you're a way better talker than you are a writer. Super easy to then translate or get a third party to translate the, you know, the audio and do a pretty compelling SEO driven blog post. It's definitely something for people to consider. I just think that you shouldn't underestimate the power of your voice once you have established the platform in both a negative and a positive way. I mean, if you're a founder who needs to raise, say, venture capital, like most of our venture partners and investors at large have listened to at least one of our podcasts before they make a decision to invest. It's the easiest thing to do. Like they're driving home, they're picking up their kids. Like I, as an investor would much rather listen and figure out if I am convinced by the founders through their podcast platform, then I would be reading like eight of their PR
1: centric Forbes articles. (laughs) Like, And I mean, it's such a intimate medium. So one of the things that you would put in your bio is that you also work with your family's two foundations. I know I'm just in a few women's groups and entrepreneurs and starting their businesses. And I think, you know, the first level of what people want to do is like up level their life and, you know, kind of get to that sustained income that is gonna, you know, be stable and financial independence. The next level is really making a larger impact. So most people have things that they want to give to. So I I think this idea of like a foundation is it's a dream for a lot of people. So I'd love to know more about it.
0: So we have two foundations, the Monell Foundation and the Vettelson Foundation. Both were actually started at the same time by my great grandmother, really out of the outskirts of the depression. As you can imagine, a fascinating time to be a woman with independent wealth that, you know, to be honest, that also didn't really have a man by her side. She named both of them after her two husbands who had both died. Her game plan was to like take on the world. I really admire her, but I never knew her. I I think a foundation is a really compelling way to leave a legacy for the next generation and also like, frankly, a legacy for yourself, like a remembrance of you and an assurance that the next few generations will keep you in mind as they continue to build on the foundation that you first set out on. We are certainly not a gates. We're certainly not you know one of these like massive public or private foundations. But we do have annual giving strategies and, and also investing strategies. and it's been really fun to be able to work with you know, the generation above me, peers in my own generation to understand, that you unfortunately can't give to everybody, but to create kind of like an investment and a giving thesis around you know how you want your dollars to make a bigger impact. And so we really focus on early stage research across kind of the life sciences, oceanographic research, health and you know healthcare, biotech, stuff like that. Definitely, I think back in the 20s, we we're not really talking about like biotech. hundred years ago it was more like, hospital care, you know, I think also to her credit, she left a big enough stroke to allow us to really hone in on the message and adapt it across the generations, adapt it with technology, adapt it with like the resources we have today, adapt it across the, you know, evolving philanthropic landscape, right? Like there's also just a lot more people with a lot more wealth giving a lot more money away than there was 100 years ago. So there's also that been a really important way for me as a founder to maintain a hobby and maintain like another life's purpose. And Navit is certainly my first child and forever will be. And I am like very incredibly dedicated to its success. But at the same time, I'm also needed elsewhere. And it's really cool and empowering to have something that's yours. That's why you become an entrepreneur, right? Like you you want to build something from the ground up. And then once you've built it, you want to foster it, and that's kind of we're in the fostering stage right now. It's been really, really great to to watch us evolve and also see where we can make a bigger impact at, at ground level with organizations that you know, frankly, might go out and look for venture capital, but they need just first dollars in in the form of a grant to like prove out their hypothesis and get a team on board. As an early stage startup entrepreneur, it's also really cool to see what it would have looked like from ground, like real ground zero, if we were building something a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's really fun. It's a very creative way to bring a family together.
0: It is. I think too, people always say like, oh, it's just like a pot of money that you just give away. Well, if that were the case, four generations later, we would have no more money to give away. (laughs) So there's also this important component of like, are you actually investing that wealth so that you can continue to give more as dividends increase. So there's actually a lot of kind of investing implications that I think, unlike, say, maybe like a trust fund or another kind of multi-generational vehicle, a foundation kind of investment portfolio can be more collaborative. It can still be sticky, like it's still a family matter, but it's almost like this way to teach each other, teach the next generation how to invest, how the last generation, what their kind of investing principles were, what our tolerance for risk is. You know, I mean, I was in the boardroom at like nine years old because dad thought that, that, that was a really cool experience. Not like anything impactful to say. You can set a certain amount of money into a foundation out of the gate that, you know, is self-sustaining and grows and that you use as kind of a teaching vehicle for your kids. And I think that it's a really cool thing to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really teaches values too, which I love. Let's go to our lightning round now. Who or what are you learning from?
0: Honestly, I learn from Aaron every single day. You know, we read incessantly. I learn from a lot. We have an amazing board of advisors who I learn from every hour, let alone every day. But I think Erin and I really complement each other well, because we think about different strategies, different strategies differently. She's a behavioral scientist, she has really helped me tap into a level of EQ that I did not know that I had, you know, I think that I kind of bring another level to her of kind of strategy and and growth tactic. and, And it's just really fun. Both have had very different lived experiences and to come together, like leveraging those experiences to build something together is really unique.
1: What's your growth edge right now? Like, is there something that you're working on that? Well, I'm
0: super interested in this student athlete because I feel like it's kind of like my two worlds have started to actually collide. Like for years, I was trying to convince, you know, any investor, any post or, you know, anybody interviewing me that like, there's a connection between physical health and uh, financial health. And like, you can really take the learnings of the high performing athlete and apply it to the end financial consumer. And like, I feel like I've just like constantly been on this hamster wheel, like proving that. And now with the name, image and likeness, you know, the NC2A and being kind of brought on to these new athletes and providing this like new income stream for them, we're starting to see in like rapidly that athletes, they need financial literacy right now. And it's actually that stress that they don't have it is starting to impact their performance. I mean, you can, again, look at the Olympics and look at who are, you know, what we're watching. It's these athletes have so much stress. And in part, because we as the United States put so much value on their name, image and likeness, and as the representation of our country, which is not fair to the athlete, we never do that in the other three years, we kind of forget gymnastics is a sport or we forget water polo is a sport we forget fencing like it's not like we're watching them and most of most of the time and then all of a sudden we say like you're the future of women in our country you have to get a gold like are you kidding and if you if you don't we're gonna pull our sponsorship and so i'm super excited to start to see kind of student athletes and athletes at large be considered for their own financial fitness and their own financial acumen as a key piece of their overall well-being
1: What advice would you give a young person entering their career?
0: Give yourself grace. I'm like a huge proponent of this and do not, until recently, maybe didn't do it enough. You know, if you're hungry and if you're determined and you're all those fun Deloitte acronyms, I think that you can get lost in your mindset that like you are what your job description entails and you're like so much more than that. And also you're not going to get to the next level if you don't take care of yourself. I always have that statement in the back of my mind, like, I'm always a little bit stressed, and a little on edge. But at the end of the day, I think it's really important to kind of reflect and to say, like, okay, am I really being too hard on myself? Because more likely than not, I probably am.
1: It's a constant work in progress, right? Like, yeah. Well, thank you, Maya. This has been so wonderful.
0: Same. Thank you so much for thinking of me and, and for having Navit represented once more. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art of the App. If you liked the episode, please share it with a friend and consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people just like you find the show. You can connect with me on my website at michellechering.com or Instagram. The link for both is in the show notes. See you next week.